Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. On October 7, 2001, a U.S. Air Force MQ-1 Predator drone flying over Afghanistan fired a missile at a building CIA analysts suspected of housing Taliban leader Mullah Omar. The Predator missed and instead struck a vehicle, killing several of the Mullah's bodyguards. The botched Predator strike was not, contrary to popular opinion, the first time U.S. military and intelligence agencies had sent aerial robots into battle. As early as the Second World War, the military had tinkered with remote-controlled bombers. Drones also played an important, and today largely unheralded, role in the bloody two-decade U.S. air war over Vietnam and surrounding countries in the 1960s and 70s. Drone aircraft spotted targets from manned U.S. bombers, jammed North Vietnamese radars, and scattered propaganda leaflets, among other missions. The Vietnam Drone War was waged by a misfit crew of contractors and airmen led by some of the era's most ingenious engineers and managers. And for much of the conflict, they answered to one person, Bob Schwanhauser, the secretive chief of a secret war with their own secrets to keep. This is Drone, an audio adaptation of Drone War Vietnam, a non-fiction book about the world's first robot war by me, David Axe, a filmmaker and reporter for Forbes. And I'm your co-host, Matthew Galt, a reporter for Vice and host of the podcast Angry Planet. Part 1. On May 1st, 1960, CIA pilot Gary Francis Powers took off from a base in Pakistan and winged toward Ukraine, a center of Soviet weapons production. Soviet radars tracked Powers' U-2 spy plane the whole way. A dozen Soviet fighters climbed to intercept but couldn't reach the high-flying U-2. Powers' luck ran out near Sverdlovsk. Two S-75 surface-to-air missile batteries launched missiles at the U-2. One V-750 missile exploded behind the spy plane at an altitude of 67,000 feet. The damaged U-2 spiraled out of control. Powers bailed out right before a second V-750 struck his plane. Powers, now a prisoner of the Soviets, was a living, and for the Americans embarrassing, reminder of the U-2's vulnerability to modern air defenses. On May 5, 1960, four days after Powers' shootdown, Soviet Premier Nikita Khrushchev publicly announced that Soviet forces had downed an American plane. The administration of U.S. President Dwight Eisenhower, initially believing that Powers had died in his plane's destruction, at first tried to obfuscate the true nature of the fateful U-2 mission. American officials claimed an unarmed weather research plane belonging to the National Aeronautics and Space Administration had been conducting a routine weather reconnaissance flight in Turkish airspace when it had suffered a malfunction in its onboard oxygen system. Powers had blacked out, the Americans explained. With its pilot incapacitated, the weather plane had veered into Soviet airspace by accident. The United States government requests the Soviet government to provide it with full facts of the Soviet investigation of this incident, the U.S. State Department stated in a diplomatic cable. Two days later, Khrushchev revealed that Powers was alive. What's more, Soviet inspectors had examined the U-2's wreckage and confirmed that it was indeed a spy plane carrying powerful cameras and other sensitive equipment. The American aircraft intruded across the borders of the Soviet Union for aggressive reconnaissance purposes, Soviet officials explained in a diplomatic cable. The Eisenhower administration panicked. But the White House had been warned that this might happen. Exactly. 
Someone had better be giving some thought to the problem we're going to have if and when a U-2 pilot comes down in unfriendly territory, Colonel Harold Wood, the Air Force's head of reconnaissance, said at a meeting with his deputy, Lieutenant Colonel Lloyd Ryan, in the Pentagon basement in September 1959. That someone turned out to be Ray Balweg, vice president of Pasadena-based Hicon Manufacturing, which produced the U-2's powerful cameras. A few weeks after Wood uttered his ominous warning, Balweg met the colonel and his deputy at the Pentagon. Ryan echoed Wood's concern about the seeming inevitability of a U-2 pilot winding up in enemy hands. Hell, Lloyd, why don't you have us install a camera in a jet target drone, Balweg said. No reason it can't be programmed to do the recon job for you and bring back pictures. No pilot, no risk of a pilot getting captured. However, Wood and Ryan knew nothing about unmanned aircraft. What drone, Ryan recalled saying. Balweg mentioned Ryan Aeronautical Company in San Diego. Founded in 1934 by airline pioneer T.C. Ryan, Ryan Aeronautical built training planes during the Second World War. Post-war, the firm turned its attention to missiles and rockets. In 1948, the company won the Air Force's first ever contract to build pilotless aircraft. Just shy of 9 feet long with a span of 12 and a half feet, the original Q-2 Firebee drone with its Continental J-69 engine could reach 521 knots at a maximum altitude of 40,000 feet. The American and Canadian militaries bought more than 4,000 Q-2s for use as aerial targets, launch them, steer them via radio remote control, shoot them down. Yet the reliable little drone could do so much more than that, Balweg believed. That bird's proven to be a pretty stable aerial platform, just what you need when flying a camera, Balweg said of the Fire Bee. It just so happened that a Ryan representative was scheduled, in a few weeks' time, to brief Pentagon officials on the Q-2. Balweg urged Wood and Ryan to attend the briefing. The briefing, by Ryan Aeronautical's Bill Orr, detailed the capabilities of the company's new Q-2C, a bigger and more powerful version of the 1948 vintage Fire Bee. However, Orr only discussed the drone's potential as a better performing target for air defense training. Ryan Aeronautical had promoted the Fire Bee as a potential recon vehicle as far back as 1955, but, gaining no traction, the company had abandoned the idea. Colonel Ryan placed a telephone call to Ryan Aeronautical in an effort to stimulate interest at the company in transforming the QTC into a recon aircraft but the Air Force's requirement for a new reconnaissance capability was classified. In his call, the colonel could only hint at the real reasons for his sudden interest in the QTC. Somehow, nothing came of that call either, Ryan recalled. Balweg ran interference on Lloyd Ryan's behalf. He negotiated a deal between HICON and Ryan Aeronautical to cooperate on a recon version of the QTC, combining Ryan's airframe with HICON's camera. Add an autonomous navigation system to the line-of-sight radio control, and voila, spy drone. Meanwhile, Colonel Ryan finally succeeded in getting on the phone to the right person at Ryan Aeronautical, Edward Ewell, a Ryan Aeronautical vice president who had recently worked for Martin on that company's RB-57 manned recon plane. Ewell understood reconnaissance and grasped what the frustrated Colonel Ryan was hinting at in his phone calls. Around Christmas 1959, Colonel Ryan told Ryan Aeronautical to get to work on a recon drone. This wasn't the same as the Air Force cutting an actual contract. There was no guarantee that the flying branch actually would buy the drone. But Ryan Aeronautical took a chance. The firm tapped Robert Schwanhauser to head the effort. 
Schwanhauser was a complex and sometimes troubled character. Born in 1930 to a wealthy family in Buffalo, New York, Schwanhauser developed a childhood fascination with two things, airplanes and girls. Inspired by his older brother, a U.S. Air Force pilot during the Second World War, Schwanhauser studied aeronautics at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, then joined the Air Force. Schwanhauser was tall and ruggedly handsome. He liked women, and women liked him. What few people realized was that Schwanhauser secretly identified as a woman, and sometimes wore women's clothes while in the privacy of his, her, own home. For the purposes of this podcast, we're going to refer to Schwanhauser by the same pronoun they used at the time. That would be he, him for most of his life, and she, her for the last few years. In 1959, Schwanhauser was skeptical that the Air Force would follow through on its verbal commitment to Ryan Aeronautical's drones. I don't see much future in this reconnaissance drone stuff, Schwanhauser told Ewell. Suffering no surfeit of optimism, Schwanhauser got to work. In early 1960, he met with top Air Force intelligence officials, the so-called Reconnaissance Panel. After walking the officials through the 12-year history of target drones in U.S. military service, Schwanhauser offered an idea that, in fits and starts over the next 50 years, would transform warfare. Versions of the same drones that the Air Force routinely shot down over its training ranges could also function as frontline warplanes, Schwanhauser explained. Fitted with cameras, a modified fire bee could fly as far as 1,400 miles to photograph enemy installations. It could be launched from the ground or from under the wing of a mothership plane. Mission complete, the drone would parachute itself to the ground or sea for retrieval by helicopter or boat. An operational fire bee could do the same job as the U-2 manned spy plane, and without risking a pilot and a diplomatic crisis. The use of U-2 manned vehicles for overflights of the territory of nations unfriendly to the United States creates, we believe, risks which are unnecessary to take, Schwanhauser said. We feel there is a solution to this in the logical evolution of the unmanned fire bee drone system. A modest study contract over the summer of 1960 had kept Ryan in the spy drone business for a critical period, during which all those fraught predictions about U-2s getting shot down and their pilots being captured or killed tragically came true. After powers shoot down, the CIA quickly recalled all of its overseas U-2 detachments. The military and the CIA added new layers of approvals for any dangerous aerial spying missions, and Eisenhower imposed a moratorium on spy missions over the Soviet Union. Eisenhower's successor, John F. Kennedy, extended the moratorium. It was becoming U.S. policy that it was too risky to send manned spy planes into the most heavily defended and politically sensitive airspace. That policy held even when, in February 1962, the powers of debacle finally came to an end. The Americans and Soviets agreed to an exchange. Gary Powers for Rudolf Abel, a Soviet spy the Federal Bureau of Investigations had nabbed back in 1957. In February 1962, the U.S. National Reconnaissance Office paid Ryan Aeronautical $1 million to modify four QTCs into what the NRO called the Ryan Model 147A Firefly. The Cuban Missile Crisis at late 1962 gave the drone program a kick in the pants. The NRO wanted to deploy Model 147s over Cuba, but the Air Force wasn't ready to reveal the drones. In the meantime, someone had leaked the name Firefly, so the military and intelligence community gave the latest Reiki Model 147s a new name. From 1963 on, they were lightning bugs. 
With its 27-foot wingspan, the Ryan Model 147B could climb to an altitude of 62,500 feet, a full 10,000 feet higher than the Model 147A, aka QTC, could achieve. The Model 147B also boasted a new navigation system and a contrail suppressor. Additional models of the Lightning Bug followed, but lacking a worthwhile war to fight, they all went straight into storage. Until the next crisis. On August 2nd, 1964, North Vietnamese torpedo boats attacked the U.S. Navy destroyer USS Maddox in the Gulf of Tonkin, an arm of the South China Sea bordering Vietnam and China. The administration of President Lyndon Johnson claimed there was a second attack on August 4th. On the basis of that purported aggression by Communist North Vietnam, the White House ordered retaliatory air raids, and Congress authorized a wider U.S. war effort in Southeast Asia. The Vietnam War ultimately would involve half a million American troops fighting not only in North and South Vietnam, but also in neighboring Cambodia and Laos. It ended in American retreat in April 1975 after some 58,220 Americans and more than 3 million Vietnamese had died. At the time Congress signed off on the Gulf of Tonkin Resolution authorizing the American War in Vietnam, U.S. Strategic Air Command's 4080th Strategic Reconnaissance Wing possessed around a dozen operational Model 147s plus their DC-130 launch planes. The wing, which in 1963 was based at Davis-Monthan Air Force Base in Arizona, also operated U-2s. President Johnson, in December 63, ordered the 4080th to deploy to Southeast Asia. Over the next 12 years, some 1,106 Ryan aeronautical drones would fly 3,435 operational missions over North Vietnam and surrounding countries. Almost all of the drones flew until they were shot down or crashed. A few dozen survived to return to the United States. Historian Bill Wagner estimated that, in substituting for manned reconnaissance planes, the drones saved the lives of scores of pilots. They also proved what was, at the time, a French theory. That robots could wage war. In part two of Drones, Schwanhauser and his crew battle the weather, unreliable hardware, a labyrinthine bureaucracy, oh, and communist troops, as they struggle to make a new technology work in some of the most brutal conditions on Earth. Drone comes to you from Defiant Productions in Columbia, South Carolina. Follow David Axe on Twitter at DAXE. Matthew Galt is on Twitter at MJGalt. Drone War Vietnam from Pen and Sword Books is available wherever you buy books.